today we're here with uh, Derek from CD, who founded CD Baby, and um, Derek's got quite a story, and uh, we were actually just talking a little bit before the interview started, and he's a, a little bit of a traveler like I am. Um, Derek, take it away. Tell us about yourself. <laughs> just open-ended like that, huh? Um, all right. My name's Derek Sivers. Uh, I'm a musician, really. Uh, I decided when I was... 14 years old that I was going to do nothing but music for life and kind of stuck with it. Uh, last time I had a job was 1992. I've been making a full-time living in music since then. And around 1997, I was selling my own CD at live shows and sold about 1,500 copies of my CD at shows before I decided I wanted to try to get it up and selling online because I was doing this radio campaign at the time. And it was, it was, my CD was at number one at college radio stations spread around, uh, around the U.S. So it's like in New Mexico, Maine, and Alaska. <laughs> My CD was number one. And I wanted to get it up and selling online so people could, from those places could buy it. And, uh, man, in, in 1997, it was a very different world online. You know, there was no PayPal, so there was no way to accept payments online. Amazon only sold books, and there was literally, as a musician, not a single place online you could sell your CD except maybe eBay, but, you know, that's not really where people shop for music. So I went calling around the big online record stores uh, and asked if I could sell my CD through them. And they said, well, we're just the front end to the major label's distribution system, so the only way you can be for sale on CD Now, for example, is if you're signed to a major through a major distribution. And I said, well, that sucks. Can't I just send you a box of CDs and you sell it and pay me? And they just laughed and said, look, kid, it doesn't work that way, you know. So so I really just set up CD Baby uh, to scratch my own itch just to sell my own CD because there was just nowhere else to do it. So I never even really meant to start a business. Uh, to be clear, I didn't start CD Baby necessarily. It was just on my band's website. I uh, set up, I went through the three months of hell to get my own credit card merchant account. You know, sold out all the forms, set up $1,000 in uh, setup fees, they actually had to send an inspector out to my location to make sure I was a valid business. I had to set up a business. And your location was, what, a bedroom in your house, right? Exactly. They really did send out an inspector, and luckily I had it set up as a recording studio, so I had to lie and say that I was taking credit card payments for my recording studio because they didn't allow people to take credit card payments online at the time. So, uh, yeah, I had to go through three months of red tape and set up, and, and then I had to learn how to create a shopping cart online, which also was pretty difficult in 97, had to copy examples out of books, you know, CGI bin pearl scripts and all that stuff, and man, after three months of hard work, I had a buy now button on my website, and uh, that's when some of my fellow musicians in New York said, hey, could you sell my CD through that? And I said, well, sure, I guess. So what later became CD Baby really was just me doing a favor for some friends uh, around New York. Um, and how big did CD Baby get to? Um, let's see. So I started it at the end of 97, um, and it just had maybe 10 or 20 musicians on it at first. But because I was the only one doing anything like that, word of mouth was spreading around musicians. Like, if you want to sell your CD online, there's this guy, Derek, who can hook it up. <laughs> it was really, you know, talk about... Uh, business, you know, what do you call it, uh, startup environments, there was just no competition. I was the only guy that would get your CD up and selling online. So uh, 
I think within a few years, uh, CD Baby was the largest seller of independent music online. And then by the time I sold it uh, 10 years later in 2008, uh, we'd done about 100 million in sales for 150,000 musicians. So what was like sales per, per year? Um, about 20 million US. And, and so you sold for 22 million. So you got about one times one times revenue. Uh, yeah, about well, it was doing about net profit of about four million a year. So it was about a six or seven times net. So. Nice. Yeah. And you just you just walked away, and I mean, have you been doing more business stuff since then, or has that been your main thing? Um, that was my main thing. I'm setting up something new right now, but uh, I sold it for personal reasons. It was funny that uh, a lot of people assume that the reason you're doing something is for the money and the reason you want an exit is for the money. But for me, it was neither. You know, I mean, I it's kind of told the, the longer version of why I started it because it was really just me doing a favor for friends. I didn't think that there was any money in this. And same thing with getting out. Uh, the healthy profit of $4 million a year, uh, I didn't really need the money. You know what I mean? I had no investors, so that was 100% mine. And I just really, for personal reasons, I hit this point where in... The end of 2007, I did a complete rewrite of the software, ground up, fixed all of the mistakes and bugs and all of my regrets, and made this amazing version of what I felt was really everything that I ever wanted the website to be. And at the end of 2007, I finished and I launched it and it went well, and I really had this sense of completion, like, I'm done. I don't know what else to do with this thing. So... It got to the point where I felt my clients were actually more ambitious than I was. They were wanting to grow their career and and grow, 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 and I didn't even want to grow anymore. I just felt like uh, I'm done. That's it for me. So it was Seth Godin, actually, who I'm sure your uh, listeners probably know. Uh, Seth Godin, the author of a bunch of books like um, The Purple Cow. And right. Yeah, he, I mean, he, most people would have heard of him. Yeah, so he's been kind of a mentor to me over the years. And when I told him about this situation... Uh, he's the one that actually encouraged me to sell. He said, you know, if you care about your clients and your company, you should sell. Because the idea was that I was doing my company a disservice by remaining at the helm when I was feeling uh, completely unambitious about it. So, um, But you so had I, really, it, I read somewhere that you had it, like, totally automated by that point. You could have just sat back and let it keep going, couldn't you? Exactly. And that's what I was doing um, for the rest of 2007 and... 2008 is I hadn't even been to the office in a few years. It was just going. But that's just it. Is I really had no desire to grow it. Um, I didn't want to do anything about it. I didn't want to improve it so much. I just kind of felt like sitting back and doing nothing. And uh, Could it have been running fairly comfortably, generating $4 million profit a year the way it was? Yeah, it would have, yeah. Um, so, I mean, to sell for $22 million, if it can make 4 to $5 million a year in profit, did you, did you, could you have got a lot better for it? I could have. Uh, that's just it. It's when I decided to sell, um, it was prompted because I got three offers in one week. So for the whole time I was running the company, uh, I would always every month or so get some VC firm somewhere offering to buy or some competitor offering to buy. And I always just shoot them away and said no. It didn't even entertain the notion. But in January 2008, in one single week, I got three calls, told them all no, and it was later that weekend I started thinking about it, like, well, you know what? I've just been saying no for 10 years, but maybe. And uh, so I called them all back and said yes and, and let them bid against each other. So 
Amazon was in the running and was actually willing to offer much more money, but I felt that Disc Makers, the company that I chose, I'd known them for seven years, and they had already been dealing with independent musicians for seven, well, for many more years than that. So I felt that they would do a better job of taking care of my clients. Like, they would know my clientele and understand them better than Amazon. So, uh, yeah, I chose Disc Makers for less money um, to kind of, because I just felt that they would, uh, my clients would be in better hands. Uh, now, can I ask, was it a lot less? Don't, t- don't tell me if you don't want to answer that. Um, it's hard to say because it was, with Amazon, we were still negotiating. There was no kind of final, final offer, but um, it was many millions less. Uh, but, you know, after a certain point, what do you, you know, what does it really yeah. matter? What's the difference between 22 million and 32 million? You know, it's like, <laughs> what do you do with it anyway? I decided to give it all away anyway, so it doesn't really matter. You decided to give all the money away? Yeah, so the funny thing is after after we had a handshake deal and agreed upon price, and there were a few months of paperwork uh, to go before the deal was done, I was talking with my lawyer and accountant and um, kind of feeling a little overwhelmed, like, okay, what the hell do you do with $22 million? That was the final sales price. And I told them, you know, I don't even really want the money. I really want it all to go to charity anyway. I just want to know that I don't, have to get a job at some point later in life. I want to know that I'm taken care of, but um, I don't really think it could be harmful for me to have $20 million. So they told me about this thing. I don't know if, if other countries have this, but the U.S. has something called the Charitable Remainder Unit Trust, which is a charitable trust you can set up that pays out uh, to the settler. It, it pays out 5% of its value per year um, for life, and then when you die, it all goes to charity. So it's usually set up by people at retirement age who want to give everything away, but want to make sure that they still have a little trickle coming in to help pay for their basic cost of living. So I just set that up uh, decades earlier than most people do. Um, So what I did, it was kind of a cool move, is months before I sold the company, I actually transferred the ownership of the whole company as much as possible into this charitable trust. I set up the charitable trust, transferred the company's ownership into the trust so that when disc makers bought the company, they didn't actually buy it from me, they bought it from the trust, which meant that all of that money got to go into the trust tax-free, which makes no difference to me, except it means that millions more will go to charity in the end, and um, then I just get paid out this 5% trickle for the rest of my life, which is (laughs) enough for me. So, so you get your million bucks a year to go and travel and do have fun all over the world in this trust, and then the money just then goes to charity when you're done. I mean, what a great deal! Yep. And it means that uh, it means that it gets to grow tax-free too. So the whole time, you know, it's it's invested in whatever just you know passive stock investments, and uh, because it's already a charitable vehicle, it gets to just grow tax-free for the rest of my life too, which is. You know, in the end, it just felt like that's more that gets to go to it, the charity set up for music education. So it's all going to go to music education when I die. So and more what, for the musicians. What particular types of music education? I don't know yet. It's just left uh, left for who knows whether that'll be uh, you know later tonight if I get hit by a bus or if it'll be a hundred years from now when I'm 140 years old. Uh, so I had to just leave it ambiguous uh, for the trustee to handle at the time. So. So the, the executives of your estate then will will figure out what would be an appropriate type of music education that you would have approved of, and then it will go, the money will go to that. 
Yeah, I named a few charities already, uh, but you know, who knows if they'll be around when I die or not. Uh, so yeah, the That's really interesting. Idea. I've never heard a story like this. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, it was funny. You know, it's you never have to do things the normal way. Uh, right. I think maybe just because I've been a rebellious musician my whole life, um, I didn't start my company in a normal way. I didn't run it in a normal way, and so. When I was doing this, I, I think we're all free to kind of shape the world in our image, and I just, you know, I have this thing where I don't, I don't want $20 million. I, you couldn't pay me to own a Ferrari. I don't want a 19-bedroom mansion. I think that would be horrible. Um, I just want a decent life. <laughs> and uh, so I liked the idea of getting as much of it out of my hands as possible, and just as long as I was taken care of for life, and uh I don't know. I was really thrilled when I found this vehicle. Could you undo it if you changed your mind, or is it is it the way it is? No, I can't. It's gone. It's the, the day months before the company was sold. When I signed the company into the charity, it was gone. Uh, it was no longer mine, um, and the money's not mine, and I can't get it back if I want to. <laughs> yeah. The same thing with the new company I'm setting up. I'm I'm actually doing the doing the same thing for the new company. I set up a trust first, and the trust is actually starting the new company and assigning me as the director of it so that even my new company that I'll be spending the next 10 years working on, uh, I'm not the owner of that one either. A charitable trust owns that as well. Hmm. So, I like this idea. Do you, I mean, do, do you feel like would you have gone and done like crazy stuff with the money or did you, I mean... Maybe. That, that's just it. It was a little bit protecting myself from my future self. Uh, meaning... I know some people that, some friends of mine that have sold their companies uh, in the past, and a friend of mine sold his company for like $35 million, uh, about five years ago, and uh, I, I catch him doing stupid things like talking about money, hearing phrases like only $10 million, you know, <laughs> we're thinking of buying this building, it's only $10 million. Uh, and that's, you know, for personal use, not business use, and I never wanted to be one of those people that... Uh, that, I don't know, I think that it can be damaging to the psyche if you look at your bank account and you see there's $20 million in there at your full discretion to use for anything you want. I think that could just be harmful and would make you, uh, you know, start to devalue it in your head or you know, start to do stupid things like flying, uh, you know, chartering private jets instead of just taking a regular business class seat. You know what I mean? You start throwing it away because you can. So I liked the idea of intentionally limiting myself so that I didn't even have that kind of stupid money to throw away. What about, um, I mean, have you ever thought, like, say some serious accident or something happened to a family friend or someone in your family that you could have saved with that money and now you can't? Well, that's where I had to say, okay, is, the, is this 5% per year enough? <laughs> and I think that that's, you know, let's admit it, that's a million dollars a year for life is enough for almost anything that could possibly come up. Mm. short of some you know rare disease that nobody's ever heard of and the only thing that's going to solve it is $10 million and $1 million won't do it. I mean, if it really comes down to that, I could probably take out a loan, you know? Oh, uh, right. You know what I mean? It's just the... Uh, there's a beautiful uh, quote from Joseph Heller, the author who wrote the book Catch-22, was hanging out with Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, the two of them were friends, and they were at some giant... A multimillionaire's party uh, in the Hamptons in Long Island, and Kurt Vonnegut went up to Joseph Heller and said, uh, "Wow, this is uh, 
this guy has everything, doesn't he? And uh, Joseph Heller said, well, uh, I've got one thing that he'll never have, enough. Hmm. I like that idea of enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I've not had an interview like this before. You, uh, you are the first. Hey, um, well, you warned me uh, before we started that you liked to speak bluntly, so yeah. we can talk about anything. No, and that's, it's, it's, uh, I'm fascinated. I really am. Um, what I, I guess I'm, I'm having trouble reconciling is that, I mean, you, you're a guy that you did go out and build a $20 million business. You did go and then sell it and, and make a lot of money. Um, you are going out to start another business. It's not like you're working in a Starbucks or something like that. I mean, <clears throat> you're, I guess your persona or your, the impression you give is that you're a laid-back guy, but if you've done that kind of stuff, you can't be that laid back. Oh, no, I'm, I'm definitely not laid back. It's just that I realized that I, money interests me. I, I use money as a barometer of measuring the value of what I'm doing. Like, if I'm doing something valuable, that means that um, enough people find it valuable that they're opening their wallets to pay for it, and that's how I can tell it's valuable. Short of, say, you know, something like education or, you know, you can do... Uh, charitable things where their measure, uh, their value is not measured in money. But for the most part, with anything entrepreneurial, I think you can kind of measure its value in money. Like if, if the public is finding it valuable, they'll open their wallets to pay for it. So I still use money as a measure, and money inspires me, but then I realized I didn't necessarily want it for myself. I just wanted to earn it, not have it. So for some weird reason, the idea of earning it, but then giving it to others, uh, excites me more than earning it and keeping it for myself, which makes me feel kind of icky. Um, so, yeah, I'm, de I'm definitely not laid back. Uh, I, I have always been a workaholic, but it's just separating the idea of uh, needing to keep the money uh, from being ambitious. You can be ambitious without wanting money. That's all. Hmm. Hmm. Very, very interesting. And what, how, what is the general reaction of people when you tell them about this? <laughs> well, my lawyer was the funniest one. When I told him that I, uh, I, I – he was the one that suggested this the way that I sold my company, you know, transferring it into the charitable trust first. But just over and over again, he said, you understand that it'll be gone. You can't change your mind. This is irreversible. The company is no longer yours. You don't own it anymore. The trust is selling it, not you. You get that, right? This is irreversible. When you sign this piece of paper, you know, on and on and on. I said, yes, I totally get it. And then when I came back to him months later and said, you know, I'm going to be starting this new company, and I'd like to do that again from scratch. Like, I'd like to set up the trust first and have the trust own the company from day one. And, and again, he said, you know, okay, you realize this means you're going to be working for the next 10 or whatever years day and night to build your new company, and you're not going to earn a dime. You understand that, right? And I went, yep. <laughs> and, and he So laughed. in the new company, let's say if you turn that into a $100 million company and then, and then sell it, does that mean you, the, the proceeds then go into the, the new trust for music, music education? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and even better, just all along, even all the net profits of the company aren't mine, but I'll just get a dollar a year or whatever for being the director. Um, but even the profits along the way won't go to me. Um, I've kind of resigned my life to living on that 5% that I described earlier, uh, so even the profits of the new company won't go to me. Do you, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked to one friend who's already made uh, his money for living for the rest of his life, and he, one comment that he had was that 
he felt like he, in some ways, he'd lost his edge a little bit because he already had everything he needed? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I find that sometimes, that feeling of, just in the past year since I sold CD Baby, um, a few times, like, something with my new company has come down to some real work, and I find myself going, eh, I don't have to. <laughs> it is a weird feeling, knowing you could just sit there and basically, you know, do the uh, the cliche of just drinking margarita, margaritas for the rest of your life. Mm. But I had this great... Okay, here's, here's a turning point to me. It's um, somewhere in there, let's see, this was a few months before the sale of the company was done, but it was already basically done, just, you know, papers weren't signed yet. And I took a vacation, and I went off to the southern tip of Japan, took a, took a train to a bus to a ferry to a, a volcano off the southern tip of Kyushu, like, just got as remote as I could get and checked myself into some hot springs spa and just sat there melting in this spa, looking out at the world and, you know, just sat there for a few days of just absolute, you know, melting, empty-minded bliss. But after only the second or third day... Um, You're thinking, like, what the hell am I doing here, right? Yeah, well, back in my room, I had this fascinating book written by Charlie Munger, who is uh, Warren Buffett's partner. Right. Um, wrote this amazing book that was just sparking all kinds of ideas in me, and, and just uh, and I wanted to try out these ideas. It was kind of like fascinating uh, approaches to business and with certain ways of measuring things, and I wanted to try it out. I got a little sad that I had no company in which to try out these ideas, and that's when I realized, you know what? Like the reason to have a company. We always think we're doing it for the money or we're doing it for the glory or whatever, but it's, your company's kind of like a laboratory. It's kind of like the classic, you know, the, the guy that has a garage where he goes to tinker with his go-kart, you know, or a basement where you've got your model train set laid out. It's kind of like your, your laboratory where you go to experiment and play and tinker and test things. When you own your own company, it's kind of like that. Every time you hear some business concept or idea uh, that excites you, you can go try it in your company. And so there I was melting in some spa in Japan going, I want a company again (laughs) just because I don't even care about the money. I just want a place to tinker and try my ideas and see if they work. I read um, the memoirs of John D. Rockefeller, who I guess um, spent a lot of time living just um, just up north of where you are now in New York. And um, one of the things that he talked about was one of the things that excited him the most about business was being around young men and working on interesting business ideas. Hmm. That's cool. I didn't know that. And there was a, a quote from George Soros. Let's see if I can um, find it. I wrote it down once. Um, oh, he, yeah, cool. Here we go. I found it. Um, George Soros was being in, uh, interviewed, and the interviewer said, have your billions made you happy? And he said, I'm reasonably happy, but the money's not the point. It's an indication that I've succeeded in the grand adventure of understanding reality. Oh, that's good. (laughs) I like that. It's like all of these these theories that we hear about. You read a business book. It's all just it's all just theories about the world and how people work and how motivation works and what makes people buy and what makes people, you know, do certain things. It's all just testing the way the world works and owning your own company. It's just a great way to test these theories about the world. And that's why, that's kind of what I meant about 10 minutes ago when I said I'm still really interested in money as a measure. Um, 
a measure that I'm that my experiments are successful, that I'm doing something that's of value to the world. Uh, even if I don't want to, actually, I don't want to keep it, but it's still an interesting measure that you're doing something valuable. Hmm. <laughs> very, very interesting. Um, so your first company you didn't uh, have any funding for. Now you've, you've given your money away. Like, are you going to have any funding for your next company, or is this going to be built from, uh, from the ground up as well? Built from the ground up. Um, what I did to set up a new trust is um, just transferring a small amount of money into the, to, to fund the trust, and that that small amount will be all that's um, all that's in there to to set up a new company. But setting it up like a holding company. So if my first little experiment does well, there will be funds in there to to fund the next one, you know, et cetera. So I'm going to always aim to do it without any investors, unless I do something, you know, stupid like start an airline or whatever. I, I don't really see the – I'm, I'm happy working on really small scale. I never really wanted to do that thing of starting a grand company and raising many millions of dollars to start something huge. I just – I like the idea of tinkering with small things that don't need funding. I'm, I'm interested to ask more on your thoughts on that. Uh, can you talk about, like, how much funds you're actually putting in and what you're setting aside and, you know, how, how, how you'll grow it? I'm, I'm really interested to understand that, if, if you're willing to talk about it. Sure. Well, I mean, I'm just doing this really – Naively, you know, we can always try to predict how the future will go, but I might be massively wrong. I mean, we'll find out. So CD Baby, I started with $500, um, that, and that was just <laughs> – it's funny. When I think about what – the only money I ever put into CD Baby was that $500, and that went to uh, uh, $99 for a copy of Dreamweaver to build the site, right, the HTML uh, builder, $20 for my first month of web hosting, and then $375 for that fucking SSL certificate, you know, oh, yeah. VeriSign. That was my biggest startup expense was 375 bucks for that SSL certificate. Well, my, my, my friend Mark Shuttleworth would like to thank you for um, your contribution to that market. And VeriSign bought him for $575 million. So, um, oh, exactly. I, I, and he does fly around in private heart. planes, and I'm sure he really appreciates your contribution. We were actually uh, – I just switched from Mac back to Linux because – Ubuntu has become so amazing. So I'm a huge fan of Mark's. He's a he's a hero of mine. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was my entire money that I put into CD Baby. I just grew it from that $500. And you know, the fir- I think the, the first month it lost money. I only made 300 bucks the first month. But the second month in business, I made $700, and I was profitable. And I think you know the even the let's say like my 11th month in business, I probably only made $1,000. But it, so it grew really slowly like that. But I was net profitable, so um, I'm cool with that kind of slow growth. So my new company, Muckwork, um, is a remote assistance firm. So say for anybody who read the four-hour work week, you know the idea of the virtual assistant firms in India that have uh, just people that are well-versed in helping you, uh, like as if you were hiring an assistant, but just hiring them by the hour or literally by the minute for whatever you need help with, mm-hmm. an assistant sits at a computer somewhere in the world and you outsource uh, the things you need help with to them instead of needing to hire a person that sits next to you in your office that works 9 to 5, 48 hours a week. So I'm setting up a virtual assistant firm for musicians uh, with people working from home worldwide that are already well trained to help musicians with the things they need help with. So uh, if a musician needs some help, uh, whether it's booking some gigs or copywriting their songs or updating their MySpace page. Um, they could just ask somebody from Muckwork to help them out with it. So the startup costs are really nothing. Uh, just 
incorporating, and I'm doing the programming myself. So at least my idea now is that just I'm putting 5000 bucks into the trust to, uh, to fund, say, just the first month of business, and hopefully, that once the, hopefully the first month will be profitable, and I can just grow it slowly after that. So what happens if it's not? Uh, <laughs> I'll put another few thousand dollars in. <laughs> and then at a certain point, if it's still not profitable, then I guess you could say that that experiment didn't go well. I mean, so you, you will, I mean, like what you could potentially be doing here is a cap of up to 10 grand you'll put into this, and then if that hasn't worked out, then you'll shut it down and, and move on to the next thing. Perhaps, although it's just a matter of time, isn't it? I mean, it's just because something hasn't worked yet doesn't mean it never will. So I could... You know, I could keep trying. I guess we'll just see what happens over the next year. Um, but I'm quite committed to it. You know, we business aside, I mean, we have certain interests in life. So it, I guess at a certain point, it seems Mark Shuttleworth got fascinated with creating a new Linux distribution. And I don't think he was doing it for the money. It's just something that he was probably an interest of his that he was fascinated with. I'm guessing. I don't know if you, if you have other insight to that, but... Um, I think he, I mean, he doesn't publicly say, actually, I won't, I won't comment. Okay. <laughs> but, um, so for the last 11 years, I was really just geeked out on, uh, completely obsessed with uh, how to sell music. And that was my fascination. So CD Baby just grew out of the fact that I was fascinated with, first, how to sell my own music, then how to sell other people's music. And I spent 11 years with almost every waking thought spent on how do I sell music. And I'm not really interested in that anymore. So what's really fascinating me now is this combination of, like, how do I get things done through others, not trying to do everything myself, but how do I work with other people to to get things done? How do I uh, work with people, especially remotely? With uh, you know, So that, whether you call it crowdsourcing or just the getting things done, but what you're doing is niching the concept. I mean, I actually saw a new startup that is doing exactly what you're talking about, and I guess I'm sure there's others out there providing, a, I guess, a, an interface onto the, the hordes of offshore people that want to do work. But what you're yep. doing, which I've never heard before, is, is niching that, and so therefore you'll have teams that become very closely trained and understand the, the needs a lot better and hopefully be able to do a higher-quality job. Exactly. The, the and also idea. you have distribution then to clients because you must have deep relationships within the music industry. Exactly. When I sold the company, I when I sold CD Baby, I got to keep my client and customer base. That was kind of condition number one of the sale is that I get to keep my clients. How do you mean uh, you, got, you got to keep them? You, you got the email list or what? Yeah, well, it's just basically the the day I sold the company, uh, the, the minute the wire transfer went through, I did one last dump of the database, uh, the entire database, and I got to keep that and uh, continue to talk with whatever clients and customers were signed up to CD Baby as of that moment, um, are, I'm free to continue talking with. Um, and uh, so that was still, so now I guess you could say it's a shared database up until that point and only the, the people All right, Mr. Up. Save the World. Now, come on. I mean, that's a pretty smart business move that you've done there, and I have not heard anyone else tell me that they've done that move. So. Um. Oh, well, it's, <laughs> the deal was, you know, again, it's when I was thinking of selling, uh, I called back the the companies that were interested, and I said, all right, look, here's my condition. Um, I want to keep my clients because I'm planning on starting another company that's going to be helping musicians. So I also need a very narrow non-compete because I need you to understand that I'm not going to uh, – well, I need you to understand that I'm going to be doing this next company that's also going to be helping the same musicians, 
even helping them with very similar things. So we're probably going to end up working side by side. So I won't compete directly. on. I won't be starting a, another online music store. I won't be starting another web hosting company. But I'll be helping the same musicians with promotion and outsourcing and whatnot. So um, yeah, it was just a condition of the sale. That and then, so they all know you. And, and so, I mean, you send an email out to your list and they all respond and all that sort of stuff? Exactly. So, in fact, the cool thing is that I'm in – I took it – the sale of the company, I kind of symbolically came out from behind the uh, the veil, the whatever, the curtain uh, of CD Baby. And oh, did they not know who you were before? A lot of them did. I mean, they'd been receiving emails for years that had my name signed at the bottom, but it was only about CD Baby business. So if you look at my blog now, uh, sivers.org, uh, it's still stuff that's useful for musicians, but now it's really just kind of me – just communicating not as Derek, the CD Baby guy, but just Derek, some guy that is out there trying to help musicians with various things. So I'm actually more in touch with my clients than ever, but um, just in a more ambiguous way for now. Hmm. So, I mean, there's almost no chance then when you get started that you it won't work. Yeah, except that I'm, I'm so... I mean, you have, the hardest, you have the two hardest things. One you have is the, the distribution... And then the second thing you have is the relationship and a level of trust with the, the people in that distribution. So as long exactly. as you don't totally screw it up right from the start, it's going to be pretty hard for you not to make it work. Exactly. So unless it's really something that they, the market just doesn't want, but I think they do need it. Um, and, yeah, because, I, I mean, I have 150,000 musician clients that I think need it, and probably you know, 10 or 20,000 of them will agree. And so I've got my client base built in for my, my next business. Maybe that's why I'm kind of pretty confident that it will work. And, and even if it doesn't at first, I'm so fascinated with this idea of, of outsourcing and getting things done through others that I think I'm just going to stick with it for years. So even if the first incarnation doesn't work, I'm just going to keep at it. And even through times when, like, there's real work you've got to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the hard part. Although it's funny, you know, this idea of saying, well, how much of it do I need to do myself? I enjoy doing the programming myself, but maybe, for example, I won't be president. Maybe I'll just be the guy that kind of funds it, helps bring the client base, and and uh, from day one finds somebody else to be president of it. Um, or let's say from day two, I guess, <laughs> since I won't be able to pay them from day one. I'll just, I'll just kind of get that first little 1% going and then hand it off to somebody else to run it where I can... I mean, there are thousands of ambitious guys in New York City that you could probably bring on to do something like that. Exactly. You probably, you know, the other way you could even do that is um, offer that out to your 150,000 musicians. There's probably uh, a guy or two in there that would be perfect for it. I, yeah, definitely. So. Hmm. I'm fascinated. I've not heard anyone talk like you before. <laughs> talk to a lot of people. Oh, thanks. I, I, and so I didn't tell like this is something you want to do, like just like traveling around the world too, right? You, do you, or do you intend to build an office and a team and stuff like that, or is this just going to be you like globetrotting? No, in fact, part of the reason that I left CD Baby is I hated having the responsibility of – I had 85 employees, and they were the main reason I left. Is uh, You know, I, I see that you, uh, you've interviewed uh, Tony from Zappos. Uh, mm -hmm. He talks about – how at his previous company before Zappos, he hated the fact that he let the internal culture get corrupted to the point where he hated going into the office himself. They designed Zappos to be the company they wanted to be with for, forever. Exactly. So CD Baby, for the first eight of its ten years, 
you'd have that awesome culture where it's just, you know, uh, but I guess I, I don't know, about the last two years, for whatever weird uh, balance of reasons that I, I'm analyzing to death myself, um, the internal culture got corrupt to the point where I hated it. And then it, it became like the, uh, the metaphorical uh, rotten apple that spoils the barrel, like a few rotten eggs or rotten apples spoil the whole barrel. And pretty soon the, I felt like the only way I could possibly continue with the company was either to fire everybody and hire a new crew or fire everybody and say, like, move the company all the way to Texas or something as a way of just getting out of town and, and avoiding all that bad blood and you know, people that will hate me at the old one because it got so corrupt, or just selling it and walking away and making it not my problem anymore. Um, so Do you think that was the real reason that you uh, sold? That was a huge part of it, yes. I think if I really had the same lovey-dovey kind of relationship with my employees that I had two years before, I probably would have stuck it out longer. Like, we would have felt that we were in this together, and, and maybe I would have assigned some more control over to them and stepped back a little bit myself that the company could have continued under my ownership. But it was really because things had gotten so bad with the employees that they hated me, I hated them, and we really weren't on speaking terms. I, I really didn't speak to my employees for the last year and a half of the company. Um, it was that bad. <laughs> um, so I kind of – so Muckwork, my new company, is I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to see if I can do a company with no employees and have everybody, even the management, be uh, freelance people offering their time that aren't bound to me, but whoever wants to do the task. It's kind of this experiment in crowdsourcing that – May go horribly wrong, but I guess we can, you know, talk about that in a couple of years and see how it went if you're interested. Yeah, I mean, very much so. Um, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. It, it, your style comes across as a soft style, and it, I mean, that's, uh, yeah. It's the classic California parent example. It's it's too soft. I mean, you know those. I can't think of what movies. Uh, you know, say like uh, Willy Wonka with Veruca Salt. You know, the the kid that gets everything. Uh, becomes the worst brat of all. So I kind of I went so above and beyond to try to keep all the employees so happy mm. that I I actually over-empowered them uh, to the point where uh, the same month that we won the award uh, in, I think it was like Oregon Magazine or Portland Magazine or something like that, named CD Baby the number one best place to work in, in Portland and did this big feature-length article about us, how it's the greatest place to work in Portland, and the people who voted us into that place were the employees themselves. And that same month, they um, you know, got so empowered that they signed a big, giant manifesto about everything else that they wanted to change about the company and uh, basically wanted me to get out of the way and run the company the way that they wanted it uh, and stop telling them what to do and get out of their way. And it just it kind of got... Yeah, a little bit kind of too, what do you call it? I think there was a, a psychology term for it, like the the uh, rising tide of expectations or something like that. Like when... Dude, you want me to, I want to feel like come over there and give you a big hug. I'm feeling like I'm <laughs> <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, I, I know that a lot of this was my fault. I like, my my friends, of course, you know, your friends that care about you, they'll they'll be on your side. They'll say, man, I can't believe what those bastards in, are doing to you. They're so ungrateful. But at the same hand, I know that I'm the guy that created that internal culture. Right. And I that messed stuff it up. can be fixed. There's people you can hire that can help you with all those sorts of things. And 
I mean, that's not an yeah. area that I know at, at, barely at all. So I, I couldn't tell you how it can be done, but there are, there are certainly people that do understand those things. You, you never thought to bring in like a an organizational development consultant or someone like that to help you with it. <laughs> I, I did, but I think that's where the timing thing happened, where if it would have gotten corrupt a few years earlier when I was still deeply passionate about selling music and deeply passionate about CD Baby, then of course I would have just found a way to fix it. But I think that because things got really bad around year nine of ten, um, I think it just it happened about the time that I was getting a little sick of doing it anyway, and I was just like, you know what, I think... So what was the employee's reaction when you did the sale? Um, I don't know, because I wasn't speaking with them. Like, oh. I really... There was this point at the end of... Um, God, I mean, I, sorry, I, I don't want to go into this kind of like, you know, crying into my beer story, but um, there was this point uh, where it was mid-2007, and um, the tide internally had turned so against me that uh, we had this every week kind of company meeting. Uh, every week we'd get together and talk about things. So I was out of town that week, and we had always recorded the call, uh, sorry, recorded the meetings on a microphone for the sake of those who couldn't make it. And it was saved as an MP3 on the hard drive uh, later, so whoever wasn't there could listen to it. So this time I was the one who wasn't there, and a day later when I logged into the company hard drive and listened to the meeting, it was the vice president of the company, the guy that used to... Uh, he actually used to be my roommate. I, when he first moved to town, I put him up at my place for a few months. He was the guy that I felt was my best friend inside the company. He was the one leading the meeting, where he kind of led the company meeting and said, all right, guys, you know, basically this, this job sucks and this place sucks, and, and uh, Derek's off trotting the world with his ivory back scratcher, and we're here, you know, he's living off the sweat of our brows, and... So they, and, they, you know, pretty soon, like, the whole kind of, like, he kind of riled up the crowd who was going, oh, you know, fuck him. And, and you know, here's my, I was sitting here listening to this MP3 of my entire company basically, you know, calling me every name and yelling, fuck him. And when somebody would say, fuck him, the rest of everybody would applaud and cheer. And I was just listening to this going, wow, like, I'm done. <laughs> I, you know, and, and so I really just kind of, I sent an email to the company. I was like, you guys, um... I'm through with you. Like, I've, I've done everything I could to try to make you happy. And I don't know what else to do at this point. I, I'm not speaking to you anymore. I will continue to do the programming. Uh, you guys are on your own. Uh, you won't hear from me ever again. We're done. And uh, I sent that email out to the company kind of mid-2007, and that was the last time I spoke to them. So when I sold the company at the end of 2008, I already hadn't spoken to them in a long time, so it was just signing a But they, they all stayed in their jobs and kept doing things. Like, who was, who was, who was running the company? Well, that's just it. It's kind of, um, if you've read that book, The E-Myth Revisited, right. CD Baby really was set up as a system that just worked. So I was keeping in touch with some things uh, remotely. Uh, so there were a couple people at the company that had the authority to hire and fire and it had been that way for years. Um, and, but there was really, there wasn't like a person that ran things. It was just a system that worked. Do you know what I mean? So that's why it's... But let, let's say someone in a key position quits or something like that. You had, it was self-healing enough that if, if, you know, someone, a key person quit, that they would find a new one and replace them. Yeah, and I think that did happen once. So uh, during that year, even when I said, like, I'm basically, I'm, I'm done with you guys, I'm not speaking to you, yeah, I think somewhere in there somebody 
quit, and all I had to do was just kind of like send an email to one guy saying, Jason, I'd like you to take over his job now. Um, and then when they needed more people in the warehouse, they were free to hire uh, as they saw fit. And, um, yeah, it didn't really, didn't really need me. I, <laughs> this has been one of the most incredible interviews. <laughs> I don't know what to say. So you systematized your business that much. How many guys did you have working there? You said 80? 85, yeah. I mean, were they in an office or spread out? Like, what was the, the actual, like, setup of the, the, the guys? It was a giant warehouse. So, I mean, really, CD Baby was just a pick-pack-and-ship warehouse business. So of those 85 people, that was about 50 in the warehouse, 25 in customer service, and there were really only about five, maybe eight jobs that you could call somewhat creative or executive, like desk jobs. So it was really just a kind of customer service and CD shipping factory. And, who, and, and you managed the website? Yeah, that I did uh, all the programming myself. There was one other tech guy, um, Jason, who was really good at just kind of being there on a day-to-day -day level to fix little tech fires that came up. So I, I was kind of, I spent all my time uh, kind of doing the... So you had ultimate control since you ran the website. Exactly, yeah. And in fact, honestly, when, um, here's a bit of a secret. When I heard that MP3 of the company meeting of everybody yelling, you know, fuck him, yeah, I logged in as root to the server and typed halt and shut down the site. And as I was writing, what I decided to do is just shut down the company. I was like, I'm not enjoying this anymore. I'm not doing it for the money. Fuck you. <laughs> and so what I was writing was the thank you for your business page. Like I was going to just replace all of cdbaby.com with a page that just said, thanks for your business over the years. CD Baby has closed. Uh, we will be hiring a company to send back everybody's CDs. And I was just going to send an email to all employees going, you know what, guys, I'm not enjoying this. Go home. I'm shutting down the company. Goodbye. And so the site was actually shut down for about 15 minutes as I was writing this goodbye page. And that's when I kind of like, this was late at night. I thought, you know what, maybe I should sleep on this first. <laughs> so I, so I, Before I, you I, throw away four million bucks a year that's coming in in profit, right? Exactly. So I typed startup again. I, let the, I booted the web server back up again. And uh, that night I remembered that um, my original idea, when, when people started asking me way back in like 1999, um, you know, are you going to sell the company? During the dot-com boom, you know, so everybody was flipping and selling things. And he would ask me if I was going to sell. I said, no way, I'm never selling. I said, but if I do, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it like Willy Wonka. I'm going to slip five golden tickets into five CDs and loudly announce to the world that I'm pulling a Willy Wonka, that five CDs have five golden tickets in them, and whoever finds uh, five golden tickets will... Um, will be potential new owners of the company, except because I don't own a uh, chocolate river to push kids into. Um, instead, what I'd do is I'd, uh, once the five golden tickets had been found, I was going to hold a big musician's meeting in Woodstock, New York, where I started the company, and make a free-for-all. So any musicians who were my clients could come to this meeting, and then the five people who'd found the five golden tickets, as long as they were interested, would get up there in front of everybody and each give their pitch for what they will do if they were owner of the company. And then the musicians would get to vote on who they want to be the new owner of the company. And then whoever they voted to, I would sign the company over to that person, kind of like giving, you know, Charlie the key in the glass okay. elevator. 
And uh, that person would be the new owner of CD Baby uh, on the one condition that they were not allowed to sell. Like if at a certain point they wanted out, it would revert back to me. So they couldn't just make a bunch of promises and then, you know, sell it to Amazon or something. So that was my, uh, so that's when I decided to do that. And I was quite serious about it. I mean, I was really like, I was going to look to where I could get some. That would have been an amazing news story. You would have like made the the company grow like by a thousand times overnight. Exactly. I mean, think of how the musicians would be so thankful that I would have sold billions of their CDs while people were searching for the golden ticket. You know, people would have just come in and placed these $10,000 orders just to find the golden ticket. So, um, so that was, I was quite serious about that plan for about a week and making real concrete arrangements to make it happen. Uh, and then somewhere along there, like the, the kind of, uh, the voice, of, well, <laughs> I call it the rabbi in my head. I'm not okay. Jewish, but all my friends are. And I have this kind of uh, imaginary stereotypical image of like the rabbi who's kind of like the voice of objective wisdom, you know, looking at my scenario from the outside going like, so what, you're just going to walk away from this whole thing? <laughs> you, so, you know, you could sell the company for $20 million, but you don't want to because why? Yeah, right. And so it's kind of the, the voice of uh, uh, the little rabbi in my head that made me think, yeah, you know, it's kind of Willy Wonka golden ticket idea. It's funny, it's fun, and it excites me, but, you know, there might come a time when I'm <laughs> 60 years old having to get a job at Starbucks, as you say, yeah. because I walked away instead of selling and I think I might regret that when I'm older. So that's when I decided, uh, it's a nice story. I guess I'll tell it on my blog someday. But in the end, I just sold. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. So, so this was all started by you asking about the me living kind of like you're living. <laughs> living yeah. in, in, in gorgeous islands in the Caribbean somewhere. That, that yeah, I've been living the laptop life for a few years. Um, and I really like it. Um, I like... Uh, I like that idea of living for a few years each in a bunch of different countries and and challenging myself to for my next company to have no office and have no employees and just have it set up from day one so that everybody is uh, working as freelance people from home and just set up the system that way from day one. Might be uh, might be a failure, but I might learn a lot of good stuff along the way. So it's worth a try. No, no, it's more than worth a try. Well, I can certainly talk with you about it. Um, well, we didn't end up talking about how you <laughs> built your other company, but um, I think this has actually been a far more interesting conversation, and so thank you. Thanks. Well, yeah, the new company doesn't exist yet, so um, it's, I'm still just really just doing the quiet back-end programming of the, the basic administrative interface, you know, the, the boring stuff, you know, create an account, forgot your password, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So I'm still doing the programming. It doesn't exist yet, but the uh, it's just a, a plan. Uh, it's just a plan as of now. But, you know, maybe we'll talk in a couple of years and I'll have a, another cool story to tell. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you want to talk about which we haven't covered? Nope. Cool. Jerry, <laughs> thanks very much for your time. Great. Thanks a lot.